Welcome to the Soft Life with Sadie Baddies. Sadie Baddies is the antidote to mental health stigma, and this podcast is hosted by yours truly, Priscilla O. Adjman. We are a virtual sanctuary centering Black and multiracial people, and we prioritize the mental and emotional nourishment that is the foundation of collective healing in our communities. Thank you for being here. Welcome back, baddies. I can't believe we're already on episode eight of The Soft Life. We have two more episodes after this one to share for this current season one of the show. And so far, I have to say, I really do enjoy just being here with you. And thank you for coming back every other week to tune in. Last week, we discussed all things love, dating, relationships, and situationships, which a lot of you resonated with. Also, if you're not already following us on Instagram in our community group chat home, Geneva, don't forget to join. We have ongoing discussions after each episode in those spaces, and I'd love for you to be a part of them. So today's topic is all about growing up first-generation American, overcoming an identity crisis, and finding your tribe. I'm diving deep on my cultural identity and how it's shaped and formed me into the person I am today. And so I'll be sharing some of the challenges I dealt with mentally, emotionally, and socially for the majority of my life before I found I finally came to this homecoming that I'm currently in a phase of right now of just being connected with myself, connected with my community and uh, my roots. So this is going to be a long episode because I'm unpacking a lot here. So get cozy. And if you have to come back to this episode throughout the week, feel free, but I would love for you to join this conversation with me. Additionally, um, immigration health has always been something that's very important to me. It's always been a very important public health issue to me um, as somebody who does have a background and an education in public health. I actually spent two months in Texas um, at the U.S. South Texas border studying immigrant mental health and that was my my master's thesis i essentially spent these two months advocating for detained immigrant families at the border which introduced me to mental health advocacy if i hadn't gone through that externship that i went through i probably wouldn't have started sadie baddies three years ago because it really catapulted me and introduced me to what global mental health truly is So I'll link that podcast episode I was featured in by my graduate school um, a couple years ago if you're interested in tuning in and learning more about what I discovered when I was at the border. So first of all, let's talk about the word tribe and the use of it in this episode. A tribe is defined as a social division in a traditional society consisting of families or communities linked by social, economic, religious, or blood ties with a common culture and dialect, typically having a recognized leader. So please understand that I come from a lineage and a heritage of tribal people known as the Ashanti tribe in Ghana, West Africa. The Ashanti people are the ancestral and indigenous people of Ghana and the largest tribe in Ghana as well. So I also understand that the word tribe is used very loosely and often problematically, but just know that I'm referring to and speaking very specifically to the ethnically relevant aspect of my heritage being from this indigenous group. So I also want to dedicate this episode to my parents who instilled love, compassion, and drive into me since I was born. 
So today we're going to do a little bit of a history lesson and, and background to provide some context because this episode is all about growing up first generation American and having an identity crisis. But I think it's important to also acknowledge the beauty and the richness of my heritage of being Ghanaian. And it took me a very long time to appreciate and be proud of my heritage, um, which I'll get into later on. But I want to I want to talk about the Ashanti people. I want to talk about my lineage, my ancestors. I'm so proud of where I come from, and I have so much more knowledge and appreciation for it. So here's your little history lesson for today. So this um, summary is actually directly from a website called AfricanCraftsMarket.com. I will also link this article in the in the show notes if you want to read the whole thing. It's really great. Um, really thorough information and has pictures and will give you more visual um, concepts. So the Ashanti people live in central Ghana in the rainforests of West Africa, approximately 150 miles away from the coast. The Ashanti are a major ethnic group of the Akans, which are the Ashanti and Fanti people in Ghana. And Ghana is a fairly new nation, barely more than 50 years old. Ghana was previously called and is still known as the Gold Coast because of its rich resources and natural resources and gold. So much of the modern nation of Ghana was dominated from the late 17th through the 19th century by a state known as Asante. Asante was the largest and most powerful of a series of states formed in the foreign region of the southern Ghana by people known as the Akan. Among the factors leading to the Akan to form states, perhaps the most important was that they were rich in gold. It is now politically separated into four main parts. Ashanti is in the center and Kumasi is the capital. The Ashanti are the largest tribe in Ghana and one of the few matrilineal societies in West Africa, meaning that the matriarchy is the derivative of this, of this lineage. The, the area of Ashanti is 9,400 square miles with a population of about 1 million. The Ashanti people have always been known as fierce fighters. The people of this tribe have a slogan, if I go forward, I die. If I go backward, I die. Better go forward and die. When the Ashanti tribe was faced with war, they used drums to signal the upcoming battle. The beat of these drums could be heard through the dense forest. The Ashanti have a special handshake in which you fold in which you hold your left hand out to shake hands. This comes from the Ashanti's explanation that the left hand holds the shield and the right hand holds the spears. So in order for you to show your trust in someone, you put down your shield and therefore you have your left hand free. To the Ashanti, the family and the mother's clan are most important. A child is said to inherit the father's soul or spirit and the mother a child receives flesh and blood. This relates more closely to the mother's clan. The Ashanti live in an extended family. The family lives in various homes that are set up around a courtyard. The head of the household is usually the oldest brother that lives there. The elders choose him. He is called the father of the house or house father and is obeyed by everyone. The village is a social as well as an economic unit. Everyone participates in the major ceremonies and most frequent of which are funeral celebrations, which typically last several days. I can also attest to this personally. They last for days. <laughs> Attendance at funerals is normally expected from everyone in the village and the expenditure on funerals is a substantial part of the household budget. The Ashanti are noted for their expertise in a variety of specialized crafts. 
These include weaving, wood carving, ceramics, and the renowned kense cloth and metallurgy. Of these crafts, only pottery making is primarily a female activity, and the others are restricted to male specialists. Even in the case of pottery making, only men are allowed to fashion pots or pipes. So I wanted to spend some time explaining and sharing the history of my culture to not only highlight the beauty and the intricacy of it, but also to display the stark contrast of my roots where my parents grew up versus my upbringing right here in Harlem, New York as a black woman living in New York City. As you can tell from the mini history lesson, there's a huge emphasis on collectivism and community in my culture, which is quite different than the, quite, than the hyper individualistic nature that's practiced in the United States. So backtracking, I wanna describe what my upbringing was like. I mentioned this briefly in the first pilot episode, um, converting your fear into your purpose. However, I wanna go into depth a little bit more about my upbringing, how I was raised, the culture, the cultural aspects of my upbringing. So I grew up in suburban New Jersey in the early 90s. I lived in a neighborhood that was pretty diverse in terms of the school and the demographic of the neighborhood. We had people from all walks of life. I grew up with white kids, Asian kids, black kids, Latino kids. It was all mixed. And however, although I grew up in this very diverse neighborhood, I always felt like other, specifically because of my name. My full name is Priscilla Opoku Ajiman. And I didn't have anybody in my class that had a last name like that or a middle name like that. Um, Even so, my middle name is truly, it's an extension of my last name because Opoku is my family name. So when people be like, well, what's your middle name? They didn't understand why my middle name sounded not like a girly name like Maria or Anne or whatever kind of middle name that was typically presented in American names. So I always felt like others since I was in kindergarten just because of that. And of course, kids growing up would make fun of my name and, you know, um, say really offensive jokes about Africa and, and just thinking that it was really poor and destitute because that's the image that they were seeing perpetuated over and over again on the media. So I did get made fun of, but guess what? I'm a Sagittarius and <laughs> I, I'm not somebody that is easily, um, it was, it, let's just say it was very hard for them to actually bully me because I had my clapbacks. I didn't allow people to disrespect me and I always spoke my mind. Um, and it was really not an issue for me to defend myself. Let's just say that. So regarding my upbringing, my parents speak tree, which is a native tongue in the Ashanti tribe in Ghana. And so I just remember growing up and having them speak this, this language that I never saw in textbooks. I didn't see, you know, we had language classes growing up primarily Spanish, German, and French, but there was no classes to take tree. I didn't know anything about tree unless my parents spoke it to me. So my parents would speak to each other, and to this day, they speak to each other in a mix of English and tree. They'll go back and forth from speaking English and tree, English and tree, and go back and forth, and it was like this dance that they were always doing. 
um, around other American people, obviously they would speak English, but in the comfort of our home and the privacy of our home, they would speak primarily tree to each other. Um, my mom was always cooking to this day. She's always cooking. There's always a, a fridge full of food, jollof rice, plantains, yams, stews, soups, it, a lot of cultural foods um, were cooked in my home and still are to this day. Um, the clothing that my parents would wear, traditionally they would wear, you know, your regular garments that you'd find at Macy's or a department store. However, with special occasions like weddings or funerals, they would be decked out. <laughs> decked out in a kente cloth with the head wrap. Um, I mean, I think it's beautiful. I think it's gorgeous. And I, I have quite a bit of um, African clothes myself that were custom made for me. A lot of my jewelry has been custom made for me from Ghana. Um, and I think that is like one of the most tender parts of my culture. Um, in terms of behavior, I would say that growing up, I was very, I was taught to be very polite. That was a very big emphasis in my home. You had to be polite, you had to be courteous, you had to be kind. And generally you put others above yourself, meaning that if somebody comes over to visit, you know, one of the first things you'll do is offer them something to eat. And, you know, do you need water? Do you need this? Do you need that? Like just very, very mindful of other people, so much so that you you might even put your own needs second to helping other people be comfortable. Um, and then in addition to that, I was raised with traditional Christian values. My parents are devout Christians and we grew up in the church. I grew up going to Bible study and going to a youth group. And if you know, you know, because if you're a church kid or if you were a church kid growing up, you know that every week you had like a midweek Bible study and then Sunday was like youth group after service. And then maybe you might even have like another activity during the week. I was in the church choir, in the church dance group. Like I did a lot of church activities. That was really my social life for the majority of my my childhood and my adolescence. In terms of having guests in our house, my parents are known for being extremely generous, being extremely hospitable and very compassionate to guests. So this means that people coming from Ghana. So coming to come visit, if they didn't have a place to stay, they would stay with my family. My mom was always cooking. My dad was always running errands. And um, both my parents were very involved in the church and they still are. My dad, growing up, I remember him going to go preach and to encourage, um, you know, people in the nursing home, these you know, elderly people who probably didn't have any, a lot of visitors coming in. My dad would go visit them in, in the nursing home and um, he would often be the person that would go visit sick people. If they were in the hospital at church, they would have a few people volunteer to go visit um, the sick people who were in the hospital. My mom would cook for these people. Like my parents are just like community very community focused people and like that is a very big value in their lives and obviously that was passed down to me in a lot of ways um I would say even though I've evolved from a lot of these traditions and practices like going to church and you know just having different spiritual beliefs than what I was raised to have growing up what I will say is that I really really love the community that my parents built around them they built their own village 
You know, they came from an environment growing up where everything was collective. Everything was not just for yourself. It was for other people. And I think that is just so inherent in them. And it was passed down to to me and my siblings. Um, I would say I also love the food. I love the culture, the music, everything about it. And I I definitely appreciate a lot of those those parts of my my upbringing so that was obviously very different than what my my friends you know experienced growing up or the friends that I had in my childhood um they were a lot of them like I said they were it was a mixed neighborhood however you know these these people weren't like going to church all the time and like you know their parents weren't like praying <laughs> 24/7 and it just was a different culture it was completely different that's why I always felt like other because I felt like when people would come to my house they loved coming to my home but I almost felt like almost just I felt so different that I didn't know if it was okay to be that different um my mom is also a mental health advocate herself and I just remember her you know, when I would be in middle school or high school and I was overwhelmed or I had a big, big exam coming up, she would advocate for me. If I, She could tell when I was exhausted or burnt out and she would say, you look like you need a break, which to me was huge because I didn't even know that I needed that time and I needed that mental rest myself. However, she saw that in me and she would... I, I looking back, they were mental health days. She would say, do you want to take a day off from school and just like regroup? And looking back, I'm like, wow, my mom was giving me PTO from like the age of 13 years old. And I appreciate her for that because I think a lot of parents, especially African parents can be very, very hard on their kids, especially when it comes to their education and not missing a day of school ever. And I just appreciate that she gave me that grace. Okay, so now I want to talk about the mental health statistics in first-generation young adults as well as my own identity crisis that I had growing up. So this excerpt is actually from the National Association of uh, Mental Illness, and um, I will also link this article in the show notes. So there is something called the immigration paradox. So this is when second-generation immigrants, a.k.a first-generation Americans, like myself, people who were the first in their family to be born in the United States. So the immigration paradox is known as an experience um, that first-generation Americans have. And although trauma and stress are common in first-generation immigrants, children born in the United States to immigrant parents have even higher rates of mental illness than their parents. So this is the immigration par- the immigrant um, paradox, meaning that even though our parents went through so much to get us here, they built a level of resilience that when we, as first generation um, young adults, came into this world, we are dealing with a lot of nuances, which causes even more mental health um, illnesses and, and disorders than even our parents dealt with. Um, and so immigrants can feel an intense pressure to assimilate into US culture. 
adopting mainstream social and cultural practices at the expense of losing traditional ones. So this includes expectations that they learn and primarily speak English, consume mainstream American media, and dress, act, and eat according to mainstream American standards. This is also an excerpt from um, NAMI. And this is really interesting to me because I thought about this and I, I thought about the ways in which my parents assimilated and, which, and the ways in which they didn't assimilate. And I think it's really eye-opening because there is a societal pressure for immigrants to, when, to conform to American um, society and American culture, whether it's changing their names when they come here, which a lot of immigrants do, whether it's changing the way they speak, whether it's forcing themselves to learn English, whether it's changing the types of foods they eat. And I think in my family, I see it a lot in the in the foods that my mom would cook. My mom will, to this day, cook all the traditional foods that um, she grew up with in Ghana and, you know, share the recipes with us. However, my mom is also really good at making pasta and she would make hot dogs and waffles and Mickey Mouse pancakes. Like she, she really was doing both at the same time. And I'm like, wow, that is so amazing that she was able to strike that balance of giving us that American experience, but still letting us know where we came from. And she, and my father really, I think, did a great job at helping us appreciate both our American culture, you know, and allowing us to explore that, however, still being really connected to our roots. And although all of those things were great, inevitably, there is some generational trauma as well. So in terms of generational trauma, NAMI writes, People choose to immigrate to the United States for many reasons, but undocumented immigrants are often motivated by violence, political or religious persecution, poverty, and other traumatic experiences in their country of origin. These experiences can directly affect mental health, resulting in personal struggles and difficulties for the individual and long-term impacts that affect the next generation. So I will definitely attest to this not only in my own life but with my um, my experience and my research that I mentioned earlier going to the border and being there for two months a lot of the people that I surveyed and interviewed for this uh, manuscript that was published they said the same things that they were running away from violence religious persecution political and we literally had a survey of like what what are you running from essentially like what what was your reason for escaping and that almost 99 percent of these points hit into some type of category so a lot of this generational trauma is not just from a specific country it's it's really globally and i think that's why global mental health has been such um, an eye-opening topic for me because it's so wide range. Um, so in terms of generational trauma, I would say that my parents, I know that they wanted a better life for my siblings and myself. They wanted to have us have an easier life than they had growing up. Generational trauma comes in many, many forms. In my family's case, it wasn't necessarily war, but it was just the undeniable knowing that life could be easier if they were to uproot themselves completely. And, you know, I'll be honest with you, I actually got quite emotional when I was 
writing out this episode because I just thought about the amount of sacrifice that my parents had to make to literally say, well, I need to leave this country. I need to start a completely different life. Like that is so incredibly brave. And I just don't know if I'll fully understand the sacrifice that that took because how traumatic is that? Even if your life was great before, if your parents took that that risk of leaving their home country and everything they need to start over with nothing that is extremely courageous regardless of what their circumstance ended up being so I know that this choice was not easy for them I know it wasn't easy you know for them to just start over they did face you know financial hardships they faced health issues and personal issues that persisted along the way of them pursuing the American dream I will say also that in terms of generational trauma, personally, feeling indebted to my parents and proving to myself that I'll always make them proud, even though they didn't really require anything of me, but just for me to try my best. My parents didn't force me to get straight A's or force me to be in honors classes. It was natural for me to just excel in those areas, I think, because that's just what, that's how I was born. And they didn't force me into any specific career choice or path however I felt so indebted to them because I knew that they had it worse than me my my trying my best ended up being me having a really long standing issue with perfectionism Uh, that's where my identity crisis began I wanted to be like the other kids in my class whose parents didn't have accents I wanted to be like the kids in my class who didn't have names that were hard to spell or hard to pronounce. To this day, people still mess up spelling my name. And, you know, I know it's because it's an ethnic sounding name. And there was a lot of shame in that. But now I'm so proud of it. And I tell people my full name with pride because it's it's special. It's unique. Um, I would also say that growing up, I really tried I I internalized being around a lot of white people even though it was diverse like I said it was still a predominantly white neighborhood I wanted to be the straight-a student Um, I did have a period of time where I felt very alienated from my roots Um, I remember growing up you know people saying that I was a white girl I talked like a white girl and you know that really was it it was hurtful because I didn't understand why me having certain interests or me having a certain like academic performance performance made me white um because whiteness is not equal to intelligence like intelligence or or creativity or whatever the case is is not prescribed to just one race um and obviously they were just you know feeding into what they saw in the media However, it has real life effects. I'm talking about it 25 years later. So obviously it has some effects, right? Um, I think even the way I dressed, I really wanted to look like the limited two catalog that I saw or the Amber Comedy and Fitch catalog that I saw. I didn't have a lot of exposure to, okay, what does a girl like me really like? What do I want to, how do I want to express myself? How do I want to dress? How do I want to present to the world that is not so influenced by whiteness? Um, And I'm so grateful that my parents 
um, took me to Ghana at such a young age. When I was seven years old, my, my mom took me and my older sister to Ghana, and we spent the summer there, and it was amazing. And I just remember running around, chasing lizards, playing with my grandma's dogs outside. Like, it was very different, and my mom took us to you know, see the royal family. And, you know, I was pounding fufu outside <laughs> with my with my cousins. I just remember seeing so much culture and it was so different than what I grew up with. Um, and I'm just grateful that she made us go at such an early age. And I think that was her way of exposing us to our roots early on so that we wouldn't have to like wait so long to go back to it. Okay. And obviously there's differing cultural beliefs when it comes to being first-generation American. Um, this is also an excerpt from NAMI. A person born in the United States to immigrant parents may experience conflict between these attitudes, beliefs, and values of the parents' culture and those that are more prevalent in the United States. Parents will often try to preserve their cultural roots through maintaining beliefs and practices from their home country, while the U.S.-born children may separate or dissociate from their parents' beliefs due to a lack of strong connection to the country of origin or a desire to be more American. Because cultural beliefs and practices have deep roots and are often fundamental to a person's identity, it can be hard to discuss, resolve, to discuss and resolve differing perspectives and viewpoints within the family. This is so, so true. I really saw a stark contrast in my cultural beliefs by the time I turned 21 I would say so I was still in college but I was you know ending my um my my years at college getting ready to graduate um in college also I want to talk about my college experience briefly because it really did shift my my identity I got out of that identity crisis finally when I was in college so I know I mentioned before how I felt like I was very whitewashed and I just like was so um, disconnected from my roots and whatnot and the way I was dressing when I went to college I became friends with the most black people I had ever been friends with in my life growing up I always had black friends um, throughout middle school, high school, but I'm talking about like close friends, like a whole group of friends where everybody kind of looks like you, you know? And I even met, like I met other kids whose parents were from Ghana or Nigeria or wherever in, in when I went to college. And so that was a huge shift for me. And even though my group of friends were American for the most part, majority of them, except um, a couple of them were also first-generation American, for the most part, I felt more connected. I felt more myself. I also joined the Black Student Union when I was in college, and I became, like, a leader. And <laughs> I would um, facilitate conversations in the Black Student Union, and I, you know, did protests, and that's where I really did a deep dive into critical theory and critical race theory. And I started writing about race and talking about race and understanding my identity as a black American, as well as as an African, you know, growing up. So I saw like a huge difference of people making fun of my name, you know, growing up in middle school and high school to being in college and people like, oh, your last name's Adjuman, you must be from Ghana. Like, 
I did never ever experience that in my life. So that identity crisis really started to fizzle out when I was in college. Um, so because I had all of these different belief systems coming in from from meeting so many different people and also traveling um, in that early 20s phase, I had the opportunity to go to Paris for the, t- the first time my senior year of college. And, you know, just when you start having those experiences, your mind literally shifts. It's, it's almost impossible to stay the same when you've had that many experiences that are just outside of your comfort zone. So I would say that in my home, there was definitely a focus on obedience and courtesy, as I mentioned. Um, like I said, my parents were very big on being polite, offering guests food and water immediately when they came to visit, respect, uh, respectfully answering to questions. So if there was an elder coming to our home and you know they were asking questions like making eye contact, shaking their hand, being polite, like talking but talk not talking too much like you know there were there was definitely a lot of like nuances to behavior growing up in an African household um I would also say that um the biggest thing for me was in my mid-20s um having very different spiritual beliefs um than my family uh, or my parents I should say uh growing up I had started to learn more about um overall wellness I would say so therapy obviously but you know I I learned about meditation I learned about affirmations I learned about you know um negative self-talk I learned a lot about just mental health in general and although my parents supported it you know they were happy that I was on this path they also they didn't grow up with that you know so this was just different for them um for me to be so different in my belief system of you know I stopped going to church however I didn't necessarily alienate those values that they gave me growing up because I did I do think that there were some values that I appreciated from their up raising me um however you know, I started to look at things differently and politically as well. I think my political views changed over time. And I do describe myself as a as a very liberal person, as a very accepting and inclusive person. And, you know, I don't tolerate certain things like homophobia, transphobia, racism, religious intolerance. Like those are just things that I don't accept and they're not a part of my value system. So traditionally, obviously, there's going to be some contrast between the way I was raised um, growing up versus, you know, my views now. However, I think that there's a lot of, um, appreciation for what those values taught me. However, I have learned to create my own belief systems that support who I am today. I also found, I found it to, I found it hard to learn how to just focus on myself and really learn how to be an individual. So growing up, obviously, you want to please your parents. You want their approval for everything. You want them to pat you on the back and congratulate you for every little thing. However, it is okay to create your identity outside of your upbringing without abandoning your culture. It's really a balance between appreciation for that culture and growth. Accepting that your parents did or are doing the very best they can with how they were brought up, you know, I think there's also room for prioritizing your own mental health and your needs and your needs as an individual. 
And I think these conversations are hard. I'm not going to lie. I've had a lot of these hard conversations with my parents about who I was and like growing up, what I was struggling with to still accept. And it's okay. It's okay if if these things change. You're an adult. You're not going to be the same person you were 10 years ago. And if people in your life are having a hard time like accepting that it's it's okay for them to have a hard time however it's not okay for people to disrespect you so i think that's where there's always should be a fine line of you know acceptance and and respect you don't have to agree with someone in order to respect them so i learned to advocate for myself to speak up i learned how to say no I learned how to create boundaries, healthy boundaries through the help of therapy. And I learned how to communicate more effectively because I will say that in the time of my life where I was struggling to accept myself the most, I also was very distant from, I, I didn't have the relationship that I have now with my with my parents. I was definitely more distant. I was a little bit more alienated in my early 20s. And then, you know, I came to a point where I wanted to have a healthy relationship with them. And we had a lot of hard conversations, but it was so beneficial. And I really appreciate them for accepting me for who I am and just loving me wholeheartedly and unconditionally. And I'm really grateful for that. So I would also like to suggest and encourage you when it comes to like finding your own identity and you know going through that identity crisis you might have to go through a period of reparenting and reparenting is essentially the process of you know becoming a, a an adult that is independent when you make the decision to want to have a certain lifestyle for yourself or want to have a certain mindset or behavior for yourself that is going to be conducive to your growth reparenting is part of that process because depending on how your upbringing was you may or may not still be in alignment with that discipline or that you know upbringing that you had and there's nothing wrong with that if you need to make those changes in your life so that you are responsible for yourself you're you know after a certain point your parents are not responsible for your decisions you are so that reparenting phase that I went through I went through that when I was about 25 so it it's not as young as I thought it was going to be it wasn't like 21 22 I still think I was very much dependent on my parents um, approval and you know their their guidance in a lot of ways and they still guide me but it's different now it's more like coming from wisdom and you know their knowledge versus permission so for me, how I went through reparenting myself, I when I started going to therapy, I started having new habits and routines, you know, that came through my wellness routine, um, talking about my feelings openly, uh, communicating more effectively, changing my diet, changing the people I was hanging around, like reparenting myself, creating new rules for yourself. And think about what a parent does for you. And then when you come to an age of, you know, however old you are that you feel is appropriate to adjust that you know you're basically passing over the baton from your parents making those decisions for you to yourself I started doing more things for my inner child when I went through this reparenting process so I will also link um, the topic of reparenting in the show notes I covered this topic a couple years ago and a lot of people resonated with it so I'll be sure to share that with y'all okay Last but not least, let's talk about finding your tribe, aka finding your chosen family and um, your community. So 
differences in the upbringing that you have compared with other people in your life can make you feel really isolated, make you feel really lonely, can make you feel very awkward. For some people, it even causes them to be bullied. Um, but however, learning about your culture and sharing what you love is really helpful. It should be an organic yet intentional process. So my suggestions for finding your community or finding the circle of people that will help you to go through life is first of all to travel if you have the capability or the resources to leave your hometown by the time you're you know a young adult do it I think leaving your hometown is one of the the best ways that you can really extend your knowledge and you can start to immerse yourself in different cultures you can start to immerse yourself in different mindsets, different viewpoints, perspectives. The list goes on and on. You just see different things. You can just change your scenery. That does so much for us, like spiritually, emotionally, mentally, socially. Leaving your hometown is huge because for me, that that real shift happened, like I mentioned, when I started going to college. I grew up in the suburbs up until the age of 18. And then at age 18, I moved to New York City. And I've been here ever since. So I've been here for almost 12 years. Um, and it's crazy how much it, ch- it literally changes you. It changes the way you talk. It changes the way you act. It changes the way everything. It really shapes who you are and that's why people really do I will say that's why people love New York so much is because it's one of those cities and there are other cities like this in the world obviously but New York is just different in that way like New York just it it just catapults you into changing who you are in a way that makes you closer to your most authentic self I really believe that I think that me moving here and maybe this could have happened everywhere anywhere in the world who knows but I know specifically that me leaving the suburbs at 18 and living here and starting a whole new life here and setting roots here has completely changed me and I think that traveling is one of the best ways to start introducing yourself to that if you're really unhappy of where you are your hometown make a plan save save up money and and do what you need to do create a plan so that you can explore different parts of the world and you don't have to stay where you are if you feel like it's limiting your growth um there's also there's also different um scholarships for students obviously to travel and whatnot but honestly if that means you just prioritizing wanting to have a different life experience um, than what you know that's fine and I also want to remind myself and anyone who's listening that traveling doesn't necessarily mean you get rid of yourself right you take yourself wherever you go so if you have some real deep-rooted trauma or you have some things you're unpacking it's not going to go away just because you're in a different time zone you're still going to have to deal with that even if you're by the beach right like you're still going to have to deal with those things I just think that changing your perspective changing your scenery and living and challenging yourself to grow up outside of your comfort zone is really where a lot of growth happens um okay so second besides traveling, you know, finding your tribe, is connecting with like-minded people. I went through a lot of motions with friendships. Y'all already know that in the episode about friendship breakups. Um, So I have learned what types of people make me feel safe. And I, I tweeted this before, but 
I've pinpointed that the types of people that make me feel safe are people that my inner child feel safe with. If my inner child feels safe, if five-year-old Priscilla feels safe around you, then I, I feel good around you. And I think that I found those people in my life, and I'm so grateful, and they know who they are. I'm just grateful that I found those people who really see me for who I am, not just see me for being the founder of Saudi Baddies or being a content creator or whatever, really seeing me for, for who I am at my, my center. Um, it took a long time for me to, to make those connections. It took a lot of um, twists and turns. It took, it took some friendship breakups. It took a lot. So don't expect it to happen overnight. This can happen well into your 30s. I know people that are 30, 40, 50 years old and they're still going through like friendship breakups or changing their social circle. So don't ever think it's going to just be this like one time thing that happens in your 20s. It's going to happen throughout life. But the more you learn to apply what you've experienced throughout your life, the better choices that you'll make um, in terms of your friendships and finding the people that are really going to be there alongside you through this life journey. And lastly, I encourage you to dive into finding communities online that you can really be a part of. I think, for example, our Geneva home is a really, really great example of that. We have people from all all walks of life. We have people from Philly, LA, London, Lagos, Brazil, all over that are part of this home and part of this online community and obviously on Instagram as well. Um, but finding people that you gel with, it's really that simple. It's it's could be as simple as, you know, DMing someone that you've been following for a long time and maybe they're an artist and you love their work and asking them if they want to grab coffee with you or whatever the case is. Like sometimes it might just be a virtual friendship for a very long time, like a long term a long distance friendship. Whatever the case is, I think finding and making intentional choices to selecting people in your life that you can grow with is going to help you along your healing journey. In addition to that, I think also just being mindful. Like what do you want out of having a tribe? Like do you do you want just people to look good with in pictures? You want to have a little crew cuz it's aesthetically pleasing. Or do you really need people in your life that are going to help you and that you can help as well? It needs to be a two-way street. So considering that too, I, I do feel like sometimes people choose friends out of being superficial and maybe they just want friends that look a certain way that, you know, oh, like she's cute, she dresses cute. And that might be the case, but, you know, be intentional about the people that you're selecting in your life, that's your chosen family. Those are the people that you choose to be around, you know, and you choose to have in your life and spend time with and pour energy into. So choose wisely. Okay, so if you're first generation American, I just want you to know that it's okay to go through the motions and the ebb and the flow of finding yourself. It's all a process. And remember that if generational trauma can be passed down, so can generational healing. If you're the first person in your family to go to therapy or be aware of certain patterns and problems and behaviors, I'm so, so proud of you. And I hope that you find your chosen family. Well, thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode. 
And I hope that you learned something new about being first-generation American. I also hope that you enjoyed the little history lesson about the Ashanti tribe of Ghana and, of course, finding your community. I've been looking for ways to share this topic and my thoughts around it for so long, and I'm just grateful that I finally shared with this with you today. I don't even think I've written about this, you know, on Instagram. I haven't really made a post about it because it's just, there's it, too much to put into a 10-slide carousel. So I'm grateful that I've given myself the space to finally write out this topic and to share, you know, my experience being first-generation American. I think it's such a huge part of my identity. And I'm just proud of, I'm so proud of my culture. I'm so proud of where I come from. It took me a really long time to appreciate that. And as always, we can't grow this podcast without you. So if you've already provided us with a review or a rating on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, thank you so much. This may seem like a small effort, but it truly does support and grow our community. Y'all, we are growing like crazy. So keep sharing, keep recommending the podcast to your friends. Don't forget to leave a rating and a review. It really, really helps this podcast grow. Um, And I will see you next time. Stay soft. To stay connected, join Sadie Baddies on Instagram, Pinterest, Twitter, and more, and sign up for our monthly newsletter on SadieBaddies.com to stay in the loop. Sending you hella love and stay soft, baddie.